Commentary is for general information purposes only. Clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Was that a Freudian slip, Kev? You want to get rid of me? Never. I would never say that. When you go camping or hiking, a bear is probably the last thing you want to see near you. However, if you are in bear country, it's important to have a plan. It's the same with investments. When it comes to equity markets, no investor wants to experience a bear market or drop of 20%, but it's really outside of their control, which is why it's important to have a plan in place. Our team has been using the framework of how to survive a bear attack for many years now, and it is a good way to help investors face and react when market volatility is elevated, like it is now. In this episode, we cover our four rules of how to survive a bear attack. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. to Investments Unplugged. As always, I'm your co-host, Kevin Headland, co-chief investment strategist of Manlife Investment Management. And with me is co-chief investment strategist and co-host, Makan Nia. Welcome, Makan. Thanks for having me. Was that a Freudian slip, Kev? You want to get rid of me? Chief investment strategist for yourself? Never. I would never say that. But anyway, we are here to discuss uh, the bear attack. And you know, in my uh, opening segment, I talked about the four rules to survive a bear attack. And uh, this is very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, we've used this... Uh, um, idea for quite some time and it really works well with investors now Makan, i don't know if you've ever come across a bear in the wilderness uh face to face yet i have actually not not live but i have yes uh but what's the first thing we are taught as as you know anyone when you see a bear in the wilderness don't you run you grab your stuff run. and run the opposite direction <laughs> no bears chase you do not run <laughs> That's the first rule, and it works really well with investments, right? Don't run. Don't panic. Uh, and that leads in the first rule. Rule number one, vanquish fear and panic. You know, there's always a reason to sell out. Look at the headlines any time uh, during the history of markets, and there's always a reason for investors to get out of the markets. Geopolitical, inflation, interest rates, you name it. Um, there's a reason for, for investors to get out of the markets and of course, the problem with that is it takes two decisions. One, get out. That's the easy one. The hardest one is get back in. You know, I remember back in March 2020, you know, we, uh, I think we were talking uh, amongst ourselves, amongst our colleagues. March 23rd, the bottom of the market, minus 35%. How much further was the S&P 500 going to drop? Um, and it ended up being the bottom. And if people thought it was going out further and got out and said, I can get back in on a better day and try and time it, well, we know that's historically the worst mistake you can make because uh, markets then soon recovered. And of course, you didn't get a better chance to get back into the markets. Yeah. And I think that rule number one, the vanquish fear and panic is an important one. And we always tongue in cheek when we have uh, presentations that in clients, we ask them, how many of you are invested in the equity markets because you love the day-to-day -day volatility and no one puts up their hands? Well, why do we invest in the equity markets is when the end client sits down with their advisor and the end client talks about their hopes, dreams, and wishes, 
Uh, you have a discussion with your advisor. You come up with what's your asset base today, how much, or basically how much you save per year, what's your time horizon, so on. And the reality is you have to plug in a return profile to get to those hopes, dreams, and wishes. And the market has provided that over the long term. When you look at the markets, like just statistically 80% of the time, it's positive. It's rolling annual return or kegger return, depending on the time frame, is between 8 and 12%. So it's important that when we get these short-term sell-offs is that you don't go running for the hills. Very similar to when you see a bear, you don't go running. You face it face to face, you confront it or not confront it, but that's a bad idea too. But you know, you make yourself big uh, and same with bear markets when they happen is you don't go running for the hills. Your time horizon is much longer than that. And if anything, very similar to making yourself bigger, those are great opportunities to actually redeploy capital at a discount. I think it's always important when we have these corrections and, and they're they're normal and you could argue when we hit bear markets as well, which is minus 20% peak to trough. But any time we've got these pullbacks in the market, it's an opportunity, but it's important to have a plan. And I think that's the same when you come across a bear. Have a plan, know what to do. If you're going to be camping in the wilderness and there's bears in the neighborhood or in the vicinity, be aware, be prepared. And I think that's important for the markets. You know, we see an average drawdown in any calendar year since 1980 of 14 plus percent. These Corrections are quite normal. Three quarters of the time, the calendar year finishes positive when we look at the S&P 500 index. So again, we shouldn't be surprised at these corrections. Uh, this is normal market activity. Sometimes it's a bit more abrupt and deep than you would typically want, but this is uh, more par for the course of a long term. You're going to face more of these corrections um, than non-volatile markets like we saw last year where we didn't get much of any correction whatsoever, one small 5% pullback. So 2022 has been a bit more normal than 2021, I would say. This is normal. We get two 5% sell-offs in any given year. You typically get a correction of greater than 10% every couple of years, and you get these bear markets every three to four years. So this is not new. Uh, the flavor of the sell-offs are always different, but the, the subsequent, I guess, playbook is always the same. So let's go with rule number two, Kev, become familiar with your environment. I think the key risk to the markets is, is there a risk of an imminent recession? You know, while we're seeing slowdowns in economic data and we had it, you know, in the U.S., we had the first quarter economic growth in negative territory. It's important to make sure that we are aware of recessionary risks. I think the uh, there's an old joke, the markets predict five of the last three recessions. The markets are poor predictors of actual recessions, and, and sometimes you can take advantage of these dislocations. So we have a table of seven signals that we look at at recessions. The first one is whether the yield curve is inverted. And when we look at the yield curve, uh, of course, there's different maturities. The one we look at is the 10-year minus a two-year yield curve in the uh, U.S. Uh, Treasury yields. And when the two-year yield is higher than the 10-year, that tends to indicate a recession sometime within roughly the next 18 months or so. We did see a yield curve inversion, uh, I think it was back in February, and there's a lot of panic that this was showing recession. It's important to understand that this is just one indicator, and this time around, it was actually short-term. And what we didn't see was another confirmation of the another part of the yield curve, which is the 10-year minus the three-month yield curve. And we didn't see that invert, and actually that widened. So again, it kind of allowed us to digest the fact that this perhaps was not indicative of an imminent recession, 
weaker data, change in Fed tone, yes, but not necessarily a recessionary indicator. When it comes to the 10 and 2, the our work suggests is it's historically been a good predictor of recessions, but it has to be inverted for more than three months to be that confirmation sign. And we had it for a week, and I feel like we, Kev, you and I both wasted a week of our lives talking to it, and then it just went back up. Uh, but there's been false signals before. Great financial crisis. Uh, one before that, 90. So it will invert. In the future, it's important to note that it has to be inverted for three months. The next typical sign of a recession is manufacturing, specifically the ISM manufacturing at less than 45. We're not seeing anywhere close to that trend today, Kev, but things are weakening. Globally, when you look at it, we are weakening. We're coming off of very elevated levels as well from the summer of last year. We see manufacturing continuing to slow down. Is it going to be recessionary over the next year? So far, the data suggests it's not going to be. But even within manufacturing, I think we're noticing it in earnings, right? Like we just came through earnings. Not every company is going to be treated the same. Retailers have been front and center because of inflation and gas tax and food tax on consumer, but not every company has been penalized or rewarded the same in that space. So I think in this type of environment, a normalization phase, there is going to be winners and losers, and uh, it's important for active managers in this position. We are rolling off, off peak, which is what you expected, peak data following the recession recovery. But normalization, the purchasing managers indices in the 53, 54 range is normal. It's still good. It's not as good as it was, but it's still normal. I think that's what we're probably going to likely see. But it's important to continue to follow the data and see where it goes from here. So next one's inflation. I think you got this one, Kev. We saw elevated inflation levels, of course, uh, CPI, extremely strong. We're starting to uh, see perhaps peak inflation. We're seeing one of the Fed's key indicators, the personal consumption expenditure index. It's another mouthful, the PCE, has started to come down a little bit. So we're starting to see perhaps the worst behind us, um, but it's not going to come down to the Fed's target 2% anytime soon. Inflation is with us but perhaps the words behind us. Yeah, and I think that's last week why markets ripped. So we are recording this podcast on May 30th. And last week we had an incredible run and on the backs of a lot of news, but one of them was this PCE metric, which is the Fed's favored metric for inflation. The year-over-year print was actually the slowest we'd seen in a year and a half. So potentially we're at peaks. The economic data is weakening, but not recessionary, and inflation is coming down. It provides potentially a nice second half of the year for catalysts if the Fed doesn't go the full whatever it is today. I think it's seven uh, for not only equities, but for bonds. You know, they're they're just trying to normalize rates back to their neutral posture called two and a half percent and see the impact on inflation. It's also important to notice that the inflationary data is backward looking and it doesn't change that quickly when the Federal Reserve or other central banks start to raise rates. So we have to take the data with a grain of salt. And it's important to look at the trend. And as you said, if it's starting to turn, that can be a positive news. Now, one thing we're seeing with the, with the Federal Reserve is uh, tighter financial conditions. And that's another indicator. And that just really is about how easy is it for corporations to borrow money? So issue corporate debt. As you see the credit conditions tighten, this happens when the Federal Reserve starts to raise rates and you know, suck out the proverbial liquidity in the market, it's more difficult for uh, corporations to lend and they got to raise the yield to entice people to, to lend money to these corporations. Again, this is normal levels. We're now back at just about zero. So we're not 
elevated, I would say, yes, it's something to watch. It's not as good as it was. Um, it's a yellow signal in our uh, table, uh, but it would not be uh, indicative again of uh, fear or recession just yet. Let's naturally go to LEI, so leading economic indicators. So these are 10 indicators, as the name suggests, leads an economy, uh, things like housing starts, wage growth, employment, things of that nature. This has been trending down again from peak levels of last year. This is one actually Kevin and I over the past week have said, okay, we need to pay more attention to this because it's trending towards that zero line. Now it's still quarters away from hitting that, but I think it's always better to be in front of these things. And then second, even once it hits zero, a recession typically happens six months. And market peaks, uh, with the exception of dot-com going back to 70, actually happen once this goes negative. So something that's green, so it's okay today, but it could transition to neutral as we enter the second half of this year. The LEI is one of my favorite indicators because it aggregates those 10 sub-indicators and it's great one-stop shop almost image of where the economy is going um, and you know is it obviously it's weakening but it's nowhere near zero right now as you said markets peak don't usually peak until it's gone below zero so it's definitely something to watch and now we look at it at uh, housing as well you know u.s housing yes it's slowing and of course rates have gone up and and you know new demand has slowed down but housing starts remain elevated um and new housing starts remain elevated uh they might be peaking now um, but there's still a backlog uh to work through for demand and even if they start coming down a little bit, they're still well above long-term averages. So it's not signaling a weak environment. It's just perhaps coming down from, from peak demand. This is one we're watching like a hawk because housing is one of the pillars of any economy. Strong housing uh, purchases just really shows how comfortable people feel about their financial position. That's one. Two is once, let's say you buy a home, you got to fill it with stuff. It's slowing down, but it should be expected. Rates are going up. But we anticipate as the Fed pivots at some point in the second half of this year, that's also going to provide some relief for long-term mortgages. And as my American friend, because we were talking about variables with fix and things of that nature, you kind of forget that the Americans have 30-year fixed mortgages at nothing. So it's us here in Canada that are a little bit more vulnerable to a rising rate environment from a mortgage perspective. But even here, I believe 70% of our mortgages are fixed. So uh, we're much less exposed, let's say, as variables compared to fixed. Maka, you know about uh, filling your house, uh, buying a house, what, uh, not even two years ago, I think. Uh, have, you, have you completely furnished it yet? We had to. We moved from a condo, so we had to furnish it. But yeah, I can see how it's a, I've never had so many Home Depot bills on my uh, Amex, that's for sure. I was going to say also uh, the... The key for, for housing starts, you see the confidence in consumers is, of course, they're not worried about uh, their job environment. So they're actually positive and they actually start continue to consume and housing is one of the areas. And then last but not least, in terms of getting to know our environment is, is labor. And for every one measure that Kevin and I look and say, okay, well, this is kind of shifting to neutral now. The one that is extremely, extremely strong is employment. From a simplistic perspective, as long as that remains at near decade lows, it's hard to envision the recession that we care about. And what I mean by that is, listen, we may get a technical recession. And what is that? That's two 
consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And we had one in Q1 this year, and we might have in the US, and we might get another one in Q2. When you look underneath the hood, when we talk with uh, Francis and her team, a lot of that was driven by really gasoline prices, trade imbalances, things of that nature. But when you look at things linked to the consumer, when you look at business investments, they continue to remain robust. But the, what I'm talking about, the recessions Kev, you and I care about are those ones where unemployment spikes. And that's the one, everyone talks about inflation and listen, we all get it. I was just complaining to my wife right now. I went and bought cold cuts that cost me $8. I couldn't believe it. Like I had to stop the lady. I was like, are you sure? Gotta buy some bologna, man. Yeah, this is true. I gotta, I, well, cold, summer sausage is not an expensive cold cut either. Now, but you're right. I gotta go down to bologna. But anyways, yes, why employment matters is if I had $1 of disposable income to spend, with higher food costs, energy prices, things like that, I might have 90 cents, right? But I still have 90 cents and that's gonna be spent. What we care about is when that $1 becomes nothing and that's through high unemployment. And right now there's just, there is no signs of this. Hey, Jerome Powell says, keep saying, he's like, it's, it's, it's almost too strong. It could become a negative at some point, but because of that wages are up. And I look at wages, Kev, think about it this way. We believe inflation is going to trend down in the second half of this year. Is it going to go back to two? Probably not, but we're talking, let's say even three or 4%. But if wages remain strong and inflation comes down, the U.S. consumer consumers in general is actually maybe in a better position once we work through this, these inflation issues. Yeah, it's a really important point with, with labor and employment right now. I think the U.S. is at 3.6%. You said multi-decade lows. It's almost too good. It's almost too tight. You know, there is more, there are more, uh, available jobs than people looking for jobs right now. You know, participation rate is low and people argue that's why it's so low, but the labor market is extremely tight. We would not be surprised to see it tick up slightly, but the key for us is really the metric is when it surpasses the three-year average. Um, and when it surpasses that, then you start really seeing a, a um, much weaker labor market that signals a risk of recession. Um, I said, no, there's no issue right now. And the consumer remains strong. You, you talked about the GDP print, uh, negative GDP print. One of the factors was these trade imbalances. Imports were massively larger than exports. And that to me, again, signals consumption demand. So although the, the calculation comes out negative, it doesn't tell me it's a weak economy when the consumers are importing that amount of goods uh, relative to exports. And the US as a whole is a net importer of goods typically. So um, that tells, still is a positive signal for us. go to uh, uh, rule number three. This was at one point, uh, go for the easy kill, but we've uh, softened the language a bit and called it take advantage <laughs> of opportunities. And I think the take advantage of opportunities is, is important uh, in investments. And as you mentioned earlier, this could be a good signal. This is where we're starting to see more opportunities. For example, fixed income has been a, a very tough area of investment so far this year. It's been very, very difficult for investors, especially when most, if not all, fixing them indices are negative year to date um, to, as you said, May 30th. What we've seen though, however, is yields have picked up and that actually provides opportunity for active fixing and managers to take advantage of dislocations in the corporate credit space, the treasury space, emerging market bond space. Uh, you can play different durations. So as yields are, are higher, when we invest new money, we're getting higher returns on that new money. 
then that provides a really good backdrop perhaps for fixed income. And I know uh, as well as you do mock on talking to our fixed income portfolio managers, they're pretty excited. And you know, the joke is you can't, you don't see a fixing a manager excited very often, but they're actually very excited right now on the prospects of putting money to work. Yeah. And when you look at these various fixed income asset classes, so whether it's Canadian govies or credit, U.S. government credits and so on, a lot of them have double the yield that they would have had at the beginning of the year. In some cases, a triple. Just when you hear, oh, fixed income is dead, the importance of that asset class, which in fixed income's case is income downside protection. Listen, we had a once in a generational type of catalyst that had positive impact on inflation that we hadn't seen. Listen, Kev, if we did this podcast two years ago, and even if it was a fearless forecast podcast, and I said inflation would be at 8.6% in the U.S., you would have thought I was crazy. So this is a function of COVID. This will go away at some point and the importance of fixed income in terms of downside protection and income uh, will come through. Bring that a really good point in terms of the downside protection and, and the idea of swapping, fixing them for some other asset class that provides perhaps more um, you know, sustainable or, or, or consistent income. But you know, let's play the, the role and say, we're not in a recession today, but what if 12 to 18 months are in a recession? That fixed income yields will come down and you'll generate a pause or a turn. And that's where the protection really comes in for your portfolio is when we do get those recessions, the big drops in yields, the positive carry for fixed income. Um, and that helps offset some of the risk inequities. And when you look at the investment grade credit space, they have the highest cash positions on record. That's extremely reassuring what else? High yield uh, with its 7% yield. You basically need spreads to blow out by 150 basis points to get rid of that. And none of us have a crystal ball. It's probability. And those are pretty good odds to have in your favor. Now, I think the challenge is we want to time the bottom. It's human nature. If the markets were down 20, we're, like it kills us for it to go down 10. Like We want to try to capture that. The reality is you're not going to. None of us ha have the ability to do that consistency. I think we just want a game plan to feel reassured that we're putting money in today that it's going to be up in one three-year time period. And there's many ways of looking at it. We look at it through the eyes of the VIX. As an example, the VIX is in a simplistic term is the fear gauge in the U.S. Our work suggests that when this number is above 30, that is peak fear levels. And our work suggests when you compare that number versus when it's at, let's say, less than 30, is that the odds are in your favor of very material outsized returns over a medium-term perspective. We can draw the same uh, relationships with the uh, that survey, the AAII Bull Bear Survey. It's a survey of American advisors. And typically, when American advisors are very bearish, it's, you know, it's Warren Buffett's. When others are fearful, I get greedy. And when others are greedy, I get fearful. And I think last week was a perfect example of the perils. When we're out on the road, Kev, we're asking clients, what do I want? What do you want? I just want more uh, transparency. And I said, so do I. But the reality is, is once that happens, the markets have already moved. Look at it's the whole thing with timing the market versus time in the market. We're not going to say that this is not a bear market rally right now, but we were up 9% in six trading days. Think about that. Like we, we, we took back almost half of our bear market in a week. That's the S&P 500 index. 
When markets pivot, they pivot very quickly. And are you going to have the opportunity to get in? So how, what do we do? We get it. Clients are paralyzed. Dollar cost average. It takes the emotion out of the decision. And if let's say, heaven forbid, we are down another five or 10%, increase that allocation. But as you said, the pandemic, we're the lowest 35%. You know, you keep dollar cost averaging and you're going to pick up a lot of the downside but more importantly, you're going to be there for the ride on the upside. And that's the biggest, to me, the biggest opportunity cost today is not, oh, the next five to 10% on the downside. It's the next three years of annual kegger returns and not participating in them. There's an old adage that bull markets never let you in. You're always waiting for a better opportunity. Meanwhile, you sit in cash and miss the ride. And this could be very impactful to achieve those long-term goals you talked about earlier, right? The the idea that we have, uh, the, what do you call it? Hopes and dreams and wishes. I like to say an investment plan for whatever uh, goal you have, but that's the key. That's how you uh, achieve those goals, sticking to that plan, sticking to the process. comes to our, our last rule and, and mock and I know you have young kids and I have young kids as well and I, I joke that I, I tell this to them when they wake up at, at night in, with nightmares but this is a joke uh, rule number four is don't be afraid of what goes bump in the night if something is meant to hurt you it will stalk you silently and of course they sleep easy <laughs> but uh, it actually means like don't pay attention to the headlines like the things that we read about and things investors read about in the markets and whatnot it is probably not what is what's going to drive the markets lower we have to look at the the big picture and look at all the puzzle pieces together to identify what the real risks are and we got to stop paying attention to you know one specific thing um and, and realize that perhaps we're missing the real issue um and it's important to look at all aspects of the of the markets and the economy and whatnot yeah i love this one and i always you know what's the what's the game like what's the edge so when i see these negative headlines day after day you have to ask yourself what's their angle and if you're a media company your angle is to drive eyeballs to your content to drive ad revenue right like that's their purpose and they know that humans, we generally react to negative news. And Kat, we've looked into this. Why is the case? And I think the best one we've come up with is it's very evolutionary. If Kevin and I were cavemen back in the day, I think our I think our wives would think that we're cavemen today. But anyways, if we weren't paying attention acutely to the dangers around us, the margin for error was so slim. If we didn't react, we were killed. Now, thankfully, we've evolved and it's not paying attention to negative news isn't as important, but I believe we're inherently wired that way. When was the last time you watched the news for half an hour and it was 25 minutes of positive news and five of negative? It's never the case. They know that, but you know what? That's their game and you know I can respect that, but we also have to ask ourselves as investors when we see the negative headlines is... What's their angle? We made it through the great financial crisis, Kev. Remember, like back then, we major U.S. banks were going bankrupt. We didn't know whether the U.S. financial system was going to be intact uh, weeks in advance. We made it through COVID. And now it's easy. We all, we're all cocky now, right, with COVID because uh, there's vaccines and so on. But remember March 2020. Like, I'm a, Kev, you know, I'm a pretty rational person, a little bit of a robot, but I was scared, right? The, those images from... Wuhan and Northern Italy and New York, they were scary, but we made it through that. And we didn't even have vaccines back there. So, you know what? A little bit above trend inflation, 
uh, supply chain issues, we will get through this. The key is riding the wave, the opportunity cost of when this turns, and it will turn, that you're fully participating in the subsequent rally. Make a plan, stick to it. So for when we do come across that bear attack, we're ready and, and able to not necessarily survive, but even take the opportunity. And investments opportunity is key for long-term success. So thanks very much uh, for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed our podcast, uh, please rate us so other like-minded investors or uh, listeners can find us. And once again, uh, I am Kevin Headland and I'm Mark Arneum. Thanks for listening. Take care. Take care. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice. It does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Any Manulife funds mentioned are available to Canadian investors only. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede KYC, Know Your Client, Suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements and is intended for Canadian advisors. <laughs>